There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I walked with Paul Quinn from the newsroom. I and Paul, walked and talked the whole way around. Joe was really funny is they had these people like cheering and the coroners like clapping and they were like sort of slow clapping while me and Paul were going past <laughs> Hello and you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. I'm political correspondent Gavin Riley, joined in studio by news correspondents Zara King. Zara, hello. Hello, how and are Richard you? Richard Chambers, how are you? Gavin, how are you? You guys made it to the Pride Run last Friday night, how was that? That's how good I felt about it. It leaped instantly, it was so good. It was so good we needed beeping within 13 seconds. Absolutely class. Great, great time had by all. We had Brilliant. a fabulous yeah. night. Yeah, I mean, I would call it, I can't believe you did that. Um, <laughs> you know you, it was all sorry, for You think my Gormless wave was bad two weeks ago? <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I have no apologies for that. We were in. We already Absolutely fine. Um, it was more a pride walk, really, for me, wasn't it? Mark uh, Mark Armstrong, our lovely friend, organised it, and I walked with Paul Quinn from the newsroom. Myself and Paul walked and talked the whole way around. Joe was really funny, is they had these people like cheering and the coroners like clapping, and they were like sort of slow clapping while me and Paul were past. <laughs> like, were they clapping in relative proportion to how like Paul and I everything. were so was, nonplussed about doing a good time that we did a portally run after the first laugh and then we went back around the second laugh again so I'm pretty sure we came last actually which was like, I, someone has to I did see that you actually did literally did come, come last, last yeah. they were I taking were down the cones last, yeah. when we came in I love coming last I'm fine I, with that because yeah. I was registered and I couldn't go then on the evening so I gave Mairead Cleary my babe uh, ah, from the newsroom so Mairead was with us yeah, so was well actually she was with us till she wasn't I think she realised she was going to be last and then she said well, as long as my off. name is not on the <laughs> roster as being the last person across the line then that's great yeah. Yeah. Uh, but a good time was had by all uh, speaking yeah. of Pride actually this weekend coming obviously is uh, Dublin Pride uh, Richard you're going to be on the streets yeah first time ever um, taking part in Pride actually it's funny enough now I've, I've been asked the last few years by uh, gay bows who are Bohemian FC's uh, LGBTQ plus supporters group uh, do huge brilliant work in terms of outreach uh, and making football an equal place for everybody uh, and between being in work or being away and having other things on uh, I just haven't been able to do it but actually over the course of the weekend I was down at um, Beyond the Pale Festival and we're chatting to a few different people and uh, we're chatting to two two people um, I won't give away their names or anything like that um, but they made the point that this year it's probably more important than ever for people to turn out in numbers at Pride. There has been a huge number of high-profile instances of homophobic attacks in Ireland. Mm. Uh, we have seen that in recent times um, very, very prominently in the national media. There have also been studies done about, you know, you know, the fact obviously in Garda crimes there's a 30% increase in reported hate crimes uh, from 2021 to 2022. The second most targeted group for hate crimes is the LGBTQ plus community accounting for 22% of all attacks. If you go down to youth levels as well, mm. Belong To did a survey as well saying 76% of, of gay, lesbian and trans teens in school fail, feel unsafe now in their own schools. Yeah. Globally as well, three and a half times more uh, higher level of attempted suicide, 5.87 times the higher level uh, of attempted suicide for trans youth uh, in comparison to their uh, peers. And then you look at stories across the world, 
You look at what's happening in America, for example, the removal of LGBT plus texts from libraries, mm. the pushback, particularly against the trans community. This is a very scary time for a lot of people in our country. Which is just a point that's worth reasserting because I know we're, we're three straight people sitting around in the studio talking about this, but there might be this perception among a lot of people that should we had a referendum in 2015 and we decided that we'd put all of that behind us. Yeah. Like, mm. It hasn't been put behind us. We may have marriage equality, but we have a really long way to go. And I think actually as well, there's a real misconception sometimes as well that um, once that box was ticked, for want of a better term, that we were going to kind of... Uh, no longer sort of have to address some of these issues and you point out Richard and we have seen many accounts of um, on street assaults in Dublin yep. in particular mm. uh, over the last 12 months and every time it happens we're all you know shocked and stunned but the LGBTQ plus community is never shocked and stunned because they say that they find themselves in situations where they're walking down the street they're looking over their shoulder they're conscious of where they're going they're conscious of you know what public transport they're taking they're constantly mindful of their personal safety because they feel they have to be 100% Stephen Byrne actually did a really really good piece on the Tonight Show about this um, a little while back uh, he's obviously now living in Australia but just saying that there is a feeling of fear now in Dublin that he hasn't felt for a long long time and that is something that is echoed by a number of my gay friends uh, and that is something which I think is worth reflecting on uh, for those of us uh, who can be there, who can be there this weekend because Pride initially was a protest. And this is obviously mm. something which, you know, it, can be, it becomes a bit cynical and people put, point jokes at, you know, corporations and companies who get involved and put up the rainbow flag and their inclusive flags and it almost becomes, you know, pride washing. But there is a real protest at the heart of this because there is a pushback now against LGBTQ plus rights around the world, whether it is in America or it's happening here as well. And there is an increase in hate crimes and hate speech on the internet against people who are gay, lesbian and trans uh, and, uh, you know, across the LGBT plus banner. And... I think Pride this year is going to be a protest once again. It's actually 40 years now since the first recognised Dublin Pride, yeah. which was a march from Fairview Park uh, into the city centre. Which was 10 years before it was even decriminalised. At that point, it was still illegal to be gay. 100%. And I just think that this is something which is going to be, I think it's going to be an emotional weekend in many ways. Yeah. I think it really will be. Yeah. I think that there is going to be an anger there uh, from the people who are having to participate and who are participating because they want you know, it to be known that they aren't going to allow Mm. things to slide backwards. And there is, you know, a responsibility on politicians as well for this too. It's actually been interesting to note over the last few days, Cork City Council and Cork County Council under fire for the level of funding which they are granting to Cork Pride. And they've actually had to withdraw some of the um, some of the events as part of Cork Pride, including the Health and Wellbeing Expo. That's been withdrawn because of the lack of funding. So Dublin City Council has provided, I think it's something like, I think it's like 100,000 euro or something like that in terms of funding for, for Dublin Pride. Cork City Council and Cork County Council contributed a total of just 8,000 euro for Cork 8, Pride. 8,000 euro, which is obviously not enough. And this is, you know, this isn't just about, you know, um, representation for representation's sake. When you see what's actually happening around the world at this point in time, this is very, very, very important. This, the, yeah. the, not only is it a, a domestic protest, like it's a protest and a reaffirmation of rights that people don't have elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And that, that's worth pointing out as well. The, it's not just people who are marching for their own rights. They're marking for the sake of people like them in other situations worldwide. Totally. And I think as well, you know, not to be too sentimental about it, but I do think that Pride, not just Pride all year round really, but I do think this is a great time of year. You mentioned there, you know, having conversations with your gay friends and just letting them know and reiterating that you love them and that you're proud of them. Like, I think that's a really simple thing that solidarity comes in the form of like just sending a text being like you know listen like I love you so proud of you happy pride like you know that mm. happy pride is like mm. happy birthday it's a, it's a term you can say to somebody and yeah. I think you know if you're listening to this now and you know you're thinking of your gay friends like send them a text happy pride I'm so proud of you I love you you know 
things like that mean a lot to people at times like this. You know, I think for us as well, you know, as a news team, I was like, we were so proud of Mark, for example, last week, going to the Pride Run and putting our arms around Mark and being there to support Mark and all of his colleagues and the front runners. Mm. Um, You know, I think that solidarity, you saying you're going to go and and do the Pride at the weekend, I think the allyship is so important right now, but it doesn't have to always be um, a big statement. It can come in the form of a text message, a note, an acknowledgement that you love and support your friends in that situation. I, I do think it is and that is you're absolutely dead right but I do think that if there is a possibility that you could make it to any of the prides whether there's and there's yes. so many of them around the country I do think this is a year particularly for straight men I think is actually an important thing because um, it, it's something that's worth reflecting on mm. is that you know there has been you know increasing numbers of people uh, from you know who are you know cisgender or straight uh, men who do go along to pride and take part in the festivities and all that sort of festivities and, and whatnot. but I do think it's more important than ever that they stand in solidarity and really actually show their support that they are standing against homophobia and transphobia at this point in time. I think that's very, very, very important mm. this year. And I would encourage anybody who is listening to do that if they can. Um, can I just say, by the way, uh, I don't mean to make light of it, but that the, the name Gay Bose is brilliant. I just love the hark back yeah. to the, the original presenter of the Late Late Show there, just to sort of a note, Gay Bose. I immediately in my head was like, oh yeah, Gay Bose. Like, it's a yeah. pun. It's a pun on Gay Bose. So you got, it's one of the most famous flags in, in League of Ireland as well. It's always on um, the terrace. It is one of the most visible flags we have at Daily Mount Park, and it is something. Do you know what? It's actually when I because I, when I was chatting to the to the guys at, at um, Beyond the Pale, I was just kind of felt like because they were just very encouraging. Because I said, "Oh yeah, I was I was asked if I could go along this year, and I, I probably probably will go and, and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff." You're all sort of humming and hawing about, "Yeah, sure, probably will go." But when it was the importance of it was underlined to me because of the mm-hmm. fear. Now this isn't just to just show up and show solidarity. There's a fear there yeah. about yeah. what's happening at the moment. I think when you have people who are marginalised and have been oppressed in so many ways over so many decades, only now we're, you know, decriminalising some of the convictions for homosexuality in this country. I think it's really important to actually take a stand against this and stand up for what is right. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether or not you can be there yourself. Do something to try and show a bit of support as we can. What is with happened with this decriminalisation gap? You might explain it to us. Yeah, so the there's been a long running push. Um, as you mentioned, this year is 30 years since homosexuality was decriminalised yep. in Ireland, and five so years. So just ago, to explain to people who are much younger listeners that may not actually comprehend or understand, it was illegal until 1993. It was illegal in Ireland to be gay, and it was illegal therefore to have consensual sex between two consenting adults. Um, although. Ironically, um, lesbian sex was never criminalised because so misogynistic is the law and how long the law stood for. No one ever conceived of lesbianism or lesbian sexual relations yeah. being a thing. So they, they never criminalised it because it didn't cross anyone's minds as a thing people might ever do. But it has been illegal over centuries to have consensual sex between men. And five years ago, to mark the 25th anniversary, they had this national conversation and they brought in some some groups representing the LGBTQ plus communities to see, well, what should we do about this? What is the best way to deal with this? because there are some people still living their lives today with the blemish of there being a criminal record under their name because of having consensual relations with somebody else who was fully consenting to the process. And they went and looked at whether it was possible to expunge all of those convictions or whether it would be even possible to just catalogue how many of them there are. They found that it would be very difficult to formally quash all of them because there was no comprehensive record of every single person who ever got a conviction under those laws. But apparently they also decided as well 
that they actually wanted to honour the legacy of the fact that once upon a time this was illegal. They didn't want to airbrush out of history the fact that mm-hmm. once upon a time you would get a criminal record for merely being with someone who you loved and loved you back. So what they've decided is that they cannot remove all of those crimes as they were from the record, but they've decided that they will be disregarded, that nobody will have a record or any kind of blemish on their, their public record uh, for, for having done this. They're working out the practicalities of doing it because it will also mean people who now live abroad who may have had to leave the country because of the attitudes that prevailed Mm. at the time and they're figuring out the nuance of all of that but it will mean that for those people who are in older generations now who have lived their lives under some degree of a cloud for having a record over their names but that that cloud will now hopefully be lifted by all of this. Were these people that would have spent time in prison or what was the consequences? The the convictions and the imprisonments and the the general sanctions for all of this were always a bit vague Mm -hmm. and um, it is even not even clear how many um, prosecutions were brought. Like it's, it's impossible now for the guards to go back and try and figure out how many convictions might, for example, need to be quashed because mm. some of the records are on paper. Um, Criminalisation was was lifted before Pulse came in, so they don't have any kind of full database. So the, the full records are always very difficult. But I mean, if you think of the laws that are going back to, in some cases, the mid-1700s and mm. laws from the mid-1800s, which were only lifted in 1993, which, mm. you know, de- mm. defining the crime of buggery and only deciding as recently as 30 years ago that they needed to be lifted. Like this has been a a long, long shadow that's been hanging over that community and it's about time that something was done to move it. Yeah, 941 men were convicted, at least 941 men were convicted of offences prior to 1993. Uh, Also as well, Gav, as part of you know, what was announced by the government this week, uh, plans to ban conversion therapy, which has been something which has been uh, really a, a very, very painful sort of push point which has been pushed particularly in politics in America but you do start to see it being you know seeping in I suppose to an Irish perspective as well Yeah and it's kind of funny how a lot of the debate here has begun to mirror what we've seen on the other side of the Atlantic how how kind of unsavoury and how polarised that's been and you're you're debating whether things exist when when we know that they exist and they're just natural parts of human nature Mm. Um, in in a way it's Mm. almost a shame that some of these moves weren't taken before the debate became so polarised because now it seems like you're moving in at a time when these matters seem to be up for debate, air quotes for people who can't see. Uh, but nonetheless, obviously at a time when when the trans community in particular is feeling very vulnerable, the idea that it will be criminalised and someone will try to train you out of the gender that you truly feel you are will be very welcome to that community, I'm sure. I think the, the thought process around the conversation you had at the weekend, Richard, as well, as I listened to both of you speaking, is the idea that progress isn't permanent actually and that we think that so much progress has been made and then we become complacent and we tell ourselves that sure isn't a great country to live in if you're gay or if you're um, you know if you you want to come out that oh everything's fine sure can't you get married now aren't you the same as everyone Mm. else and it's this perception that progress is permanent and actually if you're too complacent that slip back can happen very quickly and you're saying that there is a gradual indication of that slip back. Yeah, I think there is but there has been a tendency for us in this country particularly straight people to to Mm. backslap over it and oh aren't we great that we're the first country in the world by popular vote Mm. to legalise same-sex marriage Mm -hmm. but you know uh, there is a complacency that can set in there and obviously that's on behalf of you know straight and cis people Mm -hmm. but there is, you know, we, we see the prevailing wind is there and social media has been a huge driver of it. Politics is a huge driver. If you look at Ron DeSantis in Florida, mm. uh, the, de- the don't say gay legislation in Florida schools in particular is something which provokes a lot of fear uh, when you see the, the sort of the tailwind behind him and his campaign and how it actually, if you look across the Republican field in the United States, that is a huge issue in terms of all of their things. They're talking about trans women in sports 
a complete irrelevance really to be honest to, to everyone's lives and the wellness and the betterness of the country but this is where uh, culture wars are sort of starting to set in uh, to political discourse and it is happening here in Ireland as well and it is sad to see that in many ways that it is something which is creeping in. I should say before we forget otherwise that Virgin Media Ireland are this year's partners uh, for Dublin Pride and very happy to be so and hoping that everyone who has taken part this weekend has a, a great weekend. Um, on the topic of general um, equality among groups though, there's one story which um, I was really struck by when, when Joe Caulfield, our sports colleague, uh, came in to, on Monday to talk about this, uh, which is the stance has been taken by ladies footballers and camogie players over what they see as inequitable treatment and the fact that they're often just left massively out of pocket and unable to afford to play their games because of the way that things are set up, Richard. Yeah, this is uh, something which isn't a surprise to anybody who's had their ears to the ground in terms of women who play football or camogie over the last number of years. It also follows similar protests and, uh, you know, drawing attention to what's actually happening in terms of women's football, in terms of the FAI, previously as well as uh, women who play rugby for the national team with the IRFU Mm. as well. But complaints made about um, really inaccessibility of playing for your county and the fact that people are being driven out of playing the national game uh, for their counties because of the fact that grants aren't being given in the same way that they've been given uh, to male players for many, many years. The State of Play report is something that had uh, come out. It was a survey given to men's and women's players, how their life sort of fares as they play inter-county sport. And there is such a huge discrepancy. People who play inter-county GAA for Gaelic football or hurling Mm. uh, are given multiple grants and their access to nutritionists, to physiotherapists, to team doctors, to all the equipment that they need to play elite sport at the highest level. And it's a sad thing to say that that does not happen for the women's games. I kind of don't know really what to say about this so mitigated. We are going to do a bonus episode about this actually it's going to be out on, on Saturday morning we're going to be talking to the Dublin Camogie captain Ashley Maher about all this she was to the forefront of all of this but like I I kind of just find it very difficult to even rationalise how things have gotten so far well actually no I, I say that and then mm-hmm. I can, because there's always been this kind of second tier nature of women's sport in Ireland, but particularly Zara, because the GAA, which is so well resourced and has all of its commercial income and whatnot, mm. only governs the men's games. And there's two separate bodies that govern the women's games. And they're obviously always going to be the lesser cousins in a way. But aren't they going to amalgamate? You would know more about this than me. But mm. is there not a plan for them to come together? And can I ask you, in the interim period before they do come together, does government have a role to play in terms of supporting women in sport here? I mean, could there be some kind of temporary supports until the GA steps in and fills the void? I mean, to hear women talk about, you know, being expected to play on pitches that have rabbit holes in them and, you know, to, to have, yeah. you know, elite, as you say, athletes finding themselves like becoming injured well, actually, and no one on the pitch side to the, support them. The, the pitches with rabbit holes thing actually is an interesting side note because one, one reason why um, female Gaelic players uh, often feel like they're second class citizens is because a lot of the property uh, that they were train on and a lot of the grounds that they play their their games on are actually owned by the GAA, the men's governing body. And so they find themselves then in a situation where depending on which county you're from, if the men's county board is quite egalitarian in its outlook and says, no, of course, you, you represent our county. By all means, use the pitch. Then you have the access to better facilities. But if you're from a county that will say, well, sorry, no, this this county ground belongs to the men's GAA mm-hmm. and we're using it. And if, if you want a good facility, then you should do the generations of legwork that we did and build your own. And so they find themselves being second class citizens on that way. And on, on the topic of whether the, the, the government has a role... One thing which is tricky about this in a way is that some of the the better facilities that the men's players get is because not only is there, there's government grants, but also the GAA has a player's charter, which doesn't compare to what mm. the female players get. So and this is actually are, this is actually the thing they're looking for is for one yeah. unified charter 
governing male and female players. Yeah, because they there's a situation now where if you are, for example, a, a men's footballer for Kerry or Mayo or Dublin, or even if you're a, a hurler for one of the lower division counties, if you're playing for, for Cavan or Leitrim or Lancashire in Division 3B of the National Hurling League, there's still a charter that makes sure that you at least are taken care of, that if you have a an accident at training, that there's always a medic on site and that a lot of your medical expenses that might arise are taken care of by the association, which is resourced enough to deal with that. That the same doesn't apply. So that you're 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 always sort of taking your own physical and your own economic welfare into your hands. It, it seems every time you go out training as a camogie player or as a ladies footballer. I think what worries me about this, and we will hear more from Ashling on this in the bonus episode of the weekend, is the message it sends to young girls mm-hmm. that you are not as important as the boy in your class who you know plays essentially a similar game to you. I just think the message it sends to children is problematic. It's not acceptable in 2023 and I feel like I say this every week about things that affect women and we're going to talk about more stuff after the break in relation to this but I just think it's not acceptable for young girls uh, to be you know hearing this conversation even and actually to have to deal with this and be confronted with this at this point in time mm. you know no. it's not something you would want for your daughter no, when she eventually gets to the clubhouse no, you know I wouldn't worry about that at all I mean uh, as a side note just the, the, the second class status of women's sports I went looking the other day for uh, jerseys for the two girls for the Women's World Cup you can't get uh, uh, women's like Republic of Ireland jersey what? for the girls sizes like the World Cup is next month is this not the shop window where you'd want it to be exploited you'd want your daughters to grow up going no this is this is the elite level of sport that I can legitimately aspire to yeah. in ways that previous generations never could there's no shop window for it you know? no there, there isn't and you, you, we talk so much about the progress which is happening in women's sport particularly in Ireland Women's World Cup Rashida Adeleke you have a huge focus on the boxing achievements of Katie Taylor for example full house in the three arena for her defence of her world title but at the heart of it there is still a massive issue with equality and quality of funding and quality of eyes and vision on what is actually happening in women's sport and when you hear uh, elite players uh, coming through the ranks saying that they have to go to sports shops to buy uh, county crest gear to go to training or go to matches that's not good enough you hear people having to drop to choose between third level education and playing for their county that's not good enough Mm. you hear people having to choose between part time jobs and playing for their county that's certainly not good enough and people are having effectively women are having to pay to play for their county that is what it comes down to at the end of the day Maria Curley a Tipperary footballer during the week was saying uh, that they have one game uh, at home in the whole championship and they're not allowed to play at Temple Stadium uh, you had people like uh, Chloe Mori from Clare the Camogie player as well highlighting a load of examples about how people are just being driven out of the game mm. and that is not that's the opposite mm. of what we're meant to be talking about and there is so much good PR for associations where whether it be the FAI or the Gaelic Games or the IRFU about the strides being made in women's sport. And yet, time and time again, we find a lot of it is just PR. Yeah. Can I ask you both, though, who has the power here to make a difference on this? Who makes the decisions? It goes down to, as you say, is it the person who has the key to the training pitch? Who is it that has the power to, to like, you know, really swing influence on this? I actually have a good answer on this for you. And it is, in terms of sporting bodies, in Ireland, the, for government funding to be awarded, they have said, the government has, that you have to have representation from women on, on the, the top committees. Yeah. That has not happened yet yeah. in the GA, despite the fact that it is going, going to be amalgamated with the LGFA mm-hmm. and the Camogie Association. And I think, given the amount of work, that there is female administrators who work in clubs and on county boards as mm-hmm. well across yeah. the country. Mm-hmm. That's 
a joke at this point. No. It is a joke. Yeah. And it does ma- make a dis- difference on decision making. If you can't see women in leadership roles within the GAA, well, then that's going to have an impact in terms of what's actually going to happen on the ground. Well, yeah. There's no representation at the top table then. No, well, we, we, and those inside the tent will probably say that the natural culture of it is that when the association only governs men and male players, that it would be almost anachronistic to have a representative number of women at the top table. Amalgamation is coming. To be honest, I wouldn't hold my breath really as to how quickly amalgamation is going to come because there is a reason that they emerged as separate standalone organisations over the decades that they have. They've always felt, for example, Camogie players, that if, you know historically, if they were to be part of the GAA, they would be too small a fish in the GAA pond and that they would actually be better having an association that answers for them and them only. They have but no that, money. But that doesn't get around the issue that they're just they not the same no commercial money. draw as anyone else, despite funded. the good sponsors that they have. And yeah. if they don't have ownership of their own grounds, then it's all um, very difficult. Um, certainly, we're going to be um, have, discussing more, as I said, on Saturday morning, we're going to have a bonus episode uh, with Ashley Mara, and that's going to be out then. Um, there is one major story of the week, and we are somewhat constrained in how much we can say at this point because we're recording this a few hours before we go out on TV. After that, again, the audio version. Um, but that is the currently missing Titan submersible um, somewhere over the side of the uh, the lamented... Which Arnold's Gavin Titan. will reiterate to you is not a submarine. It is it's not, not, it's a, it's a, submarine. not a submarine because it doesn't have autonomous movement. Because uh, it's, it's operated with button. a game controller that you have in your home. Mm. That is what is operating this missing. Like We don't want to sound like we're insensitive because at the time no, that no, we're no. recording this, th- there are five human lives missing and, and everyone hopes that by the time this is this is broadcast or, or out that they're found that, that they're found and that they can be rescued and brought back to, to dry land but like well, okay it's, it's well, without a, getting into the weeds of that because we don't know how the outcome is going to be by yeah. the time this goes to air right but I do think that we can still have a conversation around the mission itself I suppose the, the work itself in terms of going down to the Titanic first of all um, are we totally obsessed with visiting the Titanic, which essentially is a, a massive grave underwater? I find it a bit maudlin, the idea that you would be like running what are effectively very deluxe tours to what is basically a mass grave. It's a mass grave. It's, uh, it is a mass grave. Yep, it is. Uh, it's one that's rapidly disappearing as well, which is, I think, the drive for billionaire, billionaire explorers who want to go down there while they still can and see a bit of the ship. I think that's probably part of their psyche as to why they want to do it. They want to get down there before it goes. Exactly. And I am so way torn between people wanting to understand how how the the ship is decaying and understanding that whole process. And I, Mm. you know, there's an intrigue to to some degree around that. Um, But like, would you get in the back of something that is essentially the size of a small van sitting on the ground? There's a tiny potty for want of a better term and share that space with like four other, five other people. I mean, it's just... You get to see it out the window. The idea is to witness the Titanic. You're looking at that on a computer screen. You're looking at it on a screen because it's going so deep underwater that no window could ever survive that water pressure. So you're looking at it through a camera on a screen Hmm. inside a little thing and you kind of wonder then what's the real value of going down in an airtight capsule to go down and see it on the screen. I suspect if you're a loved one of one of the people on board, you're probably questioning all of that now as well and, and wondering, I suppose, what was it worth it? You yeah. know what I mean? Was that was it actually worth it? I'd be asking serious questions about the designers of this submersible. There was reports, I mean, um, experts wrote to the uh, chief executive of Ocean Gate, uh, which built the Titan, even though it's very small, uh, expressing unanimous concern about it. Uh, in a letter, letter unearthed by the New York Times, the authors warned of potential catastrophic issues with its design. Um, there was one CBS journalist, it's, not a, it's gone, a clip that's gone viral on the internet, um, basically looking at the fact that, as you say, Zara, it was like a Logitech games controller yeah. was in there. It's like a PS you press one controller. button, there was yeah. bits mm-hmm. taken from like a hardware store in terms of making it. But that same journalist also confirmed online 
um, on Twitter saying that, yeah, it went missing for five hours during the making of that report uh, and he couldn't, you know, report on it because there was no internet on board and whatnot. So this is something I think it would actually make a difference to whether or not you'd get onto it. If you'd mm-hmm. seen this thing, this little tank effectively had gone missing for hours and hours before and there had been a lot of issues about this. Yeah. There are some serious questions you've asked about the organisation of anything like that. It, it does explain why after the Titan lost contact with the vessel at surface level that they waited eight hours to, to raise the alarm because there were evidently a bit of a history of it going dark for a while. But um, obviously when you're dealing with a finite circumstances like that, every hour is crucial. What do you make about the level of coverage of it and the fact that a number of newspapers have sort of put it on the front page. And I know there's a curiosity about it, obviously, Mm. but given what's actually happening in the Mediterranean at the same time, Mm. where you're having multiples of five people Mm. uh, dying every day, effectively on the shores of the Mediterranean. Yeah. Uh, It's an interesting contrast. It's hard to reconcile, really, because here we are talking about, you know, the the Titan going down with five people on board versus the the Mediterranean fishing vessel, Mm a glorified coffin ship that went down with 750 people on it last week. And here we are talking more about that than it. Um, But there's a systematic thing that is it just, is it Western privilege? Is it the fact that it's, Mm. it's middle class? people who have means they're going down to a a thing that we all saw in a film that if there was some you know Hollywood legendary film 25 years ago about a ship that went down carrying loads of millionaires in the middle of the Mediterranean would we feel differently Mm. that we're just conditioned to to think more about some things and I kind of wonder why that is I think the Titanic is just one of those things that there's a continuous ongoing interest in and I think if you put Titanic on the front of a newspaper people read it like I just you know I never really not, got I'm not saying it's right say, yeah. like I'm just saying it happens you know what yeah. I mean I'm, I never I'm really got it right like I mean ever see, obviously the film was huge mm, but yeah. I never really got the whole Titanic is the most interesting thing in the world mm. I'd had its moment when the movie came yeah. out like it was you know there was a couple of years there where it was you know a major major thing um, I just yeah I, I just think you know Perhaps because the the submersive is that correct? Yeah, <laughs> correct. Yeah. Going the wrong thing all week. Cabin across the newsroom. It's not a submarine, Zara. You can't move autonomously, so it's submersive. No, I know, I know. I I think it's just the nature of of the whole thing and the fact that. Uh, like it's it's such an off the wall thing perhaps to have happened as well that mm-hmm. I think maybe it is the it is the kind of curiosity of how bizarre it yeah, is and just the, the obviously cover. we hope that the people yeah. on board are yeah. all right and that is the priority um, that those people will be okay and that you know we'll look back and, and perhaps reflect on this mm-hmm. uh, with a bit more of a positive light but look, we don't know how, how this will play out um, but yeah it's, it's, it's utterly bizarre in many ways Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the group chat. I uh, wanted to go back to one item that we discussed last week, which we sort of inadvertently mentioned last week because we were discussing the um, seeming unease within Fine Gael about Leo Varadkar's leadership and the fate of some of his prospective contenders to succeed him. We mentioned in passing that Helen McEntee was 
being seen as something less of a candidate because of the fact that she had taken maternity leave twice. Um, Zara, you uh, very correctly, mm-hmm. to be fair, um, pointed out just how absurd that was. And th- the response that we've had back since then was extraordinary. Like, I can't believe it was kind of something that just came up in passing conversation. and It just became a major conversation in terms of women just getting in touch to tell us that they had absolutely experienced that. And they were echoing sort of the concerns and the sentiments of what we had discussed on the podcast. And I put a question box up online last week, which received 100 replies. That was on last Thursday. Then I shared those responses last night. I want to take time to read them and digest them before we share them. I would say in terms of what came back in that, you had a real mix of women telling us that they were overlooked for promotion, that they were just not considered for that promotion, that when they came back from maternity leave, that they found themselves where their job had been completely changed. Their role was totally different. Um, really common theme was women saying that they sort of had um, commentary in the office about them being on their holiday um, that you know oh that big decision happened while you were away on your break just you know like really kind of you know perhaps not intentional but very sort of pointed reminders of and notes of the absence um, and again put the box back up again last night and we had roughly 180 replies now yeah. admittedly some of those would have people sending like two or three messages replies, within just yeah. so you're clear but I suppose look we could argue that about 200 people got in touch about this and it was just you know to, to even hear it um, was really kind of really kind of shocking I suppose look a lot of people saying missed opportunities because of the childbearing age it was disgusting lost my office and came back to essentially a broom com- cupboard said one woman Um right listen to the wording of what uh, people say one male boss said she had to go on maternity leave followed by an eye roll like it seems it's an attitude thing it seems like it's a culture thing within those work environments that's I, I just find it hard to get like what what planet are you living on that you you think that any other adult autonomous person deserves to be talking about spoken about in such like sort of disparaging terms I just can't get my head around what's going on in their heads um, I actually shared your question box last yes, night yes. And I was even struck because obviously I don't don't have the same um, level of female engagement but there was still a lot of uh, recent mothers who were coming back to me and talking about how, how dreadful it was um, one person told me that they were put at risk of redundancy when they were five months pregnant because the employer clearly in that case wanted to have them off the books uh, and they, they, I wrote back and said, Ridiculous. by the way, did they individually single you out? And they said, yeah, as it happens, I was five months pregnant and they singled me out because they clearly just didn't want to have to cover some wage while they were also paying for another body to take on the place during maternity. Um, somebody else said that they, they weren't discriminated against, but they did get pregnant shortly after they got promoted. And they were told by a male colleague, oh, of course, you got the promotion first and then you went to maternity. And mm. they were like, well, of, of course you would, because that's just prudent planning. But also the very fact that you would have to go to try and seek a promotion before you take time away from the office is not proof positive, surely, that you are going to be discriminated against if you did take maternity and that you know that your career advancement prospects are going to be hampered and that you have to go, therefore, and get your promotion first. Like The very fact that people are calling her out for it kind of proves the point that it's a thing that you have to do because you're never going to progress through the workplace in the same way. It's ridiculous. It's interesting to read one of the stories across a couple of messages from one person who said that they had their second baby. They were 15 years with the company in in question at the time. Uh, They were due back in August and in July, her team got called to a meeting and told jobs had been changed so that she had to be re-interviewed. She said that she was field-based, all new jobs were office-based. She says it broke her heart. And she took redundancy because she felt then she was pushed out. Uh, other people as well saying that they felt that they felt they, were, they were fired effectively for being pregnant. They settled out of court uh, in terms of the company there that was the employer, but it had a terrible effect on that one person as well. She was also asked openly in an interview 
And this is something which is still somehow common, mm. uh, despite the fact that it is completely against employment law. Uh, she was asked if she was planning on having more kids uh, in an interview for a new job. Um, Gav, actually, what's on my mind? Did anybody in Finnegan ever get back to you about that? Nope. No, because no, nobody, you would think, or did they get back to me because they, they had an issue with how it was represented? Did they think that we were talking through our hats by saying yeah. that there was this discrimination? Like, no, there's no one had any pushback to make because they knew that it was completely true, that there was this level of, of um, pushback or some sort of um, doubts in people's minds around whether Helen McEntee would be an appropriate party leader because she had previously taken maternity. As it happens, I had her on the radio program last Sunday and asked, by the way, do you think it is tenable? Hypothetically, not projecting you into the office, hypothetically, do you think it's okay for a Taoiseach to take maternity? And she was like, well, yes, of course. Well, why wouldn't it be? Mm-hmm. And the very fact that she said it so frankly, openly, would sort of then make you question or really just true contrast in my mind as to the attitudes that other people have um, in Fine Gael. There's one other reply, Zara, just yeah. before you come in, because I know you've got loads more. One person told me that there were three months after maternity leave, uh, every staff member had annual reviews. And this person said that they were the only one who didn't get a raise because they weren't there. Uh, now, there were lies told and they said that not everyone got a raise, but she knew that that wasn't true from speaking with her colleagues, that every other member of staff had gotten a raise and this person didn't get one because they weren't around to deserve it. Like, it's just not acceptable. I'm sorry. It's absolutely unacceptable. I can't stress enough how unacceptable this attitude is in this day and age. And like, I actually feel like it's not something that I was totally shocked by in a sense that, you know, you hear anecdotally from women in your life about these things, but to actually see it in black and white and written and sent through to us mm. in so many accounts and to see such a common theme among those accounts. I mean, to echo kind of what you were saying there, Richard, another woman here said, made redundant on return uh, from mat leave and was told at my leaving lunch, she'll be grand, you'll have another baby soon. Not okay. Um, when I told my boss I was pregnant with my third, he asked me, was it planned? You can't, you can't you do should. that. <laughs> Cannot do that. Um, absolutely not. There's so many of them. I mean, listen, we, you know, there's, you know, mm. a really, I think the really common theme here is that, you know, the fact that this is kind of something that just happens and women have to brace themselves and prepare for it. I'm like, I've had women tell me in some of these messages as well that they were like afraid to tell their boss they were pregnant, that they knew that once they told their boss they were pregnant that it was going to have some kind of, you know, negative consequence to their career. Mm. And this is why we have an issue with women making their way to the top. It's why we have an issue with women uh, being in leadership roles because there is a perception that because you take time out to give birth to your baby and you put that time in that uh, for some reason then you're not capable of coming back to an amazing job. And actually that's something that we were going to get on to Gavin as well is that there are women then equally who will say they feel like they can't take an extensive maternity leave and I spoke to one woman in recent weeks who said you know look I you know I'm I'm going back to work after six weeks now actually I will say in that case that lady did want to go back to work after six weeks and that was her choice very much Um, but she definitely felt that it was part of you know keeping her career at a high level Mm. and she did want to do it and by the way I don't think any woman should be judged for that either if that's your decision that's absolutely what you think is best for you and your family 100%. But yet the theme we had is that people get judged for it because I got a similar reply and said uh, total opposite as in I wasn't discriminated against. I'm self-employed and I was back to work after six or eight weeks and I was shamed for it. Uh, You can't win sometimes. A few of my teacher friends said when I got pregnant a second time I hope to God you actually take leave on this baby and she was like "Uh, actually no I can't because it's my business Mm -hmm. and no one will run it in his absence and I can't let it go. Yeah. So there's just there's really no winning sometimes. And I just think it's remarkable actually, Richard, it it, it strikes me as having an echo to what we spoke about earlier when we were talking about pride, that you can have equality in law, but if you don't have equality in society, if people don't see you as an equal, then 
having that legal equality is, isn't worth much sometimes. Yeah, and it, it goes to show as well that whatever, you know, protections you think you have in terms of employment law in this country, uh, there does seem still seem to be ways for uh, employers to get around it. Uh, and that is, you know, something which obviously needs to be looked at. That feels like such a wishy-washy thing to say, mm-hmm. like saying, oh, this isn't good enough or this is unacceptable or this is something that needs to be looked at. But it, it is still you know, yeah. resolutely shocking that this is kind of how it is. What I would say as well is that there's no, um, it doesn't seem to be just one industry. Like it seems to be right across the board. You know what I'm saying? Like one lady here saying, uh, they tried to demote me and take away my bonus. I'm a barrister. I threatened legal action. You know, like there just seems to be, it's not one specific industry. This seems to be something that's widespread across um, mm. all sort of workplaces. And actually, I think it's important to have this conversation. And as you say, Richard, I, I think there needs to be some kind of, major change in terms of even just culturally with attitude would be a first step and it would definitely make a difference. Yeah. Uh, Richard, because we are mainstream media shills, we have obviously been burying the Hunter Biden story uh, up until now. Speak for uh, yourself. Man's <laughs> been charged. Yeah. So what, what, what is the Hunter Biden story? Hunter Biden obviously is the son of Joe Biden. He was here a month ago? Or he was, ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was very, very prominently here and very visible in all of the photographs, which is actually something which was remarked on by the, the US mm. uh, touring press uh, gallery while they were over here. Because he's uh, been keeping a low profile because of the ongoing criminal issues he's been facing yeah. across the water. It has been something that Republicans have been pointing to for a long time, the, so, the supposed criminality of the Biden crime family, uh, which <laughs> has been uh, almost the mobster sort of name that they've assigned it. Uh, but he has uh, now, it has been now revealed that he is going to be charged, uh, particularly over tax issues and firearms charges as well. I'm not, now I am off work, so <laughs> I'm going to have to hand it over to somebody else to take it up oh, on this. Not not totally, media I'm not totally clear on that. that. I actually yeah. thought we were going to be better briefed. No, no, because <laughs> I, 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 yeah, um, it's, uh, no, it's not great. It isn't good because there has been so much of a focus put on Donald Trump and his respective legal issues. Now, people will argue about uh, what's more serious or not and what is the volume of legal issues uh, versus Donald Trump or versus uh, Joe Biden's son or not, or whether it matters that Joe Biden's son yeah. is linked to any sort of uh, misdemeanors or any sort of wrongdoing versus whether the prospective president yes. of the United States of America well, it's a, is. Well, this but, is an important point because people often draw the parallel and say, well, there's been so much discussion and so much focus on what Donald Trump Jr. or Eric Trump or, or Ivanka or anyone else might be doing. But the, there was a difference in that and where are you turning this into a Trump bashing slot when it's actually Hunter Biden who's the, the accused here? Hunter Biden doesn't have, a, doesn't have a role. He's not some sort of office holder as a, a formal advisor to the president. He's literally just the guy who happens to be the son of the guy in office. Yeah. But he's a private citizen otherwise. Also, he's also pleaded guilty, which is also a key difference, I'd say, as well. It is something to, to bear in mind that mm. this guy has uh, effectively after a long time. And I think that there was perhaps something to be said about the coverage of the Hunter Biden issue, uh, particularly by the American press, in that there was almost a little bit of a all of this is misinformation vibe to it when perhaps that wasn't always the case. Yeah. Um, that all of it was hand-waved as, it's not really to say here, there's nothing hugely about that. But mm-hmm. there has been enough stuff that it has actually been something which has been taken on by the Justice Department in the United States. So um, it is something that's going to be interesting to see what the dynamic of that, how that plays out for Republicans who will hand wave and excuse anything that Donald Trump does, mm. whether or not they will be so charitable, perhaps, Indeed. for Hunter Biden. Someone who did not uh, plead guilty and someone who is not pleading guilty about the charges that he's facing is someone who we mentioned on an episode of the podcast before. And actually, it was striking we had how... a big chat about him before, haven't we? We, we big, did. Big and people, it was striking that a lot of people, maybe of a slightly older, non-TikTok using vintage, had no idea who this person was. That's me, Gavin. Uh, no, well, it was, it was me at the time, too. <laughs> and I still haven't come across any of his material organically. Um, but Andrew Tate is in in some bother. 
he has now been formally charged uh, by authorities in Romania, which is where he's been living for a number of years. And it is actually interesting. You mentioned that our last chats on it when, when yourself, mm-hmm. Zara, and, and Gavin, you didn't come across it. Yeah. I think it's, there's a much smaller number of people who haven't heard of Andrew Tate at this point. Yes. I know, like, since yeah. went looking for it, and yeah. I've actually found myself down a, a deep dive of Andrew Has the Andrew algorithm Tate now content. skewed it where you see loads of it, whether no, you want to not really, not. actually. No, I mean, I think the social media companies seem to be getting kind of on top of it. Yeah, Is he not banned from, from everything except for Twitter? Twitter. I, you know, everything except for Twitter. I think he's back on a couple of them. Oh, is he? Okay. Might well be. I'm, right, I'm, I'm not, maybe I'm wrong in that. But anyway, yeah. uh, a lot of people who have been defending him are now going to have to reckon with the fact that he is now charged with a number of major crimes in Romania, including rape, mm-hmm. uh, human trafficking, forming an organised crime group for the explicit aim of sexually exploiting, exploiting women. Uh, and these crimes, according to Romanian authorities in their allegation, uh, aren't just limited to happening within Romania, but also in other countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom. Now, oh. Andrew Tate and his brother Tristan, also a former kickboxer, mm. uh, and two Romanian women who are all charged, they're all the co-accused in this. Now, they all deny all of this. Andrew Tate says it's all about getting his money. Um, but it is a massive, massive statement. The only thing I would say about this is, I put this up on Instagram yesterday, Day, and there was huge interest in it. Mm. Mass, mm. mass, massive interest. There was almost a little bit of celebration about it. But I would say to people about that is there are 60 days. What happens next? 60 days uh, before a judge will actually make a decision in a preliminary hearing as to whether or not it will go to a full trial. Mm-hmm. So for the oh, time so being... It's not even guaranteed that it will at this point. It looks it looks likely that it will, okay. but it's not 100% guaranteed. For the time being, he will remain under house arrest in Romania. But also, any prospective trial is going to take years. Organised crime trials in Romania apparently take donkey's ears to do. So if you're waiting for Andrew Tate has been found guilty or not guilty of anything here, you are going to be waiting a very long time. So so dig in. Yeah, the seven alleged victims, I just want to say to focus on them for a minute, say that they were uh, recruited by the Tate brothers through false promises of love and marriage and the alleged victims were then taken um, and basically held captive, intimidated, placed Mm -hmm. under constant surveillance and control and forced into debt. Um, According to a statement from Romanian prosecutors, the defendants allegedly then forced the women to take part in pornography, which was later shared on social media. So that is uh, the perspective of those uh, women at the centre of this case. It's such an insidious practice that all these people were recruited on the basis of thinking that they were in some kind of like fairy tale romance and then as soon as there was an opportunity it would appear to be exploited. Well he definitely his brand Richard is that like you know oh a man he marries a woman he takes care of her so you can see kind of how there was an element of that there with him though when he was defending some of his actions I've watched a recent interview that he did and oh, yeah. sort of saying one was it? It was the Piers Morgan one, actually. Yeah. I was watching that recently and I was going, this is actually wild. I know, but I, I thought it was important to educate oneself yeah, on yeah. these things. But I, I just felt that this kind of idea of defending on the basis that like, you know, like a man should take care of a woman as if a woman can't take care of herself, by the way. But, you know, if a woman gives over her right to be taken care of, it's this kind of whole attitude of like, you know, that's the fundamentals of marriage. And like, you can see why perhaps he was selling that to these women while essentially you know. Yeah, okay. Uh, so the trial is, is years away. We've got about 60 seconds left so let's do a quick sweepstake where we make hold all of ourselves as hostages to fortune. Uh, is the National Children's Hospital also years away? When will it open? Spot spot guess right now. Richard okay. Chambers, when will it open? Uh, I think it'll open next year. Okay, when next year? I have no idea. You said next year. I don't know. I am, I am in BAM. I'm not the government. <laughs> <laughs> I wore a hard hat and steel cap boots walking around that children's hospital a couple of months ago and I reckon it's going to open in 
June 24. There you go. June 24. Okay. It's 12 months going to go for Q3 24 just to give it a bit of difference. Uh, and now we can all be held to ransom uh, when it turns out that we're all absolutely wrong. Uh, if just Despite that story not just being in any way responsible for the children. Far too detailed hospital. for each yeah. to try and get into in the 23 seconds that we've got left. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us this week on the group chat. Don't forget special uh, episode again on Saturday morning in your podcast feeds with Ashley Mara, captain of the Dublin Camogie team. Uh, so do keep your ears out for that one. Until then, in the meantime, Richard Chambers, thank you. Gavin, thanks. Zara King, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to everybody in the gallery and everyone works behind the scenes and we will see you again for a season finale same time next week until then goodbye everyone bye good luck It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.